My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Wilderness Church. It's really good to see all of you beautiful, wonderful, lovely looking people here this, this Sunday morning. It's good to be in, in the house of God and uh, worship God and to uh, break open the word. We'll be getting to some more worship a little bit later on. And then we'll uh, do some preaching here. Are you ready for some preaching? Because this morning you're going to get some preaching, okay? So I'm just preparing you ahead of time, okay? This is going to be preaching. All right. Okay, Luke chapter 11. We are in the second of a six-week series, uh, this great adventure. We're calling Life Beyond Belief because we're, we're confronting what keeps us in believism, American kind of Christianity where we just believe things differently. And we want to move into the reality, the fullness of the kingdom, the kingdom life. And so we're looking at things that keep us from doing that. Here's a big one this morning. Here's a tough one this morning. Here's a challenging one this morning. One of the things that keeps us from entering into kingdom life is that we do not repent. Ooh. I told you, get ready. Uh, and we shoot straight around here, so get ready to get shot at straight. And I just want you to know that however miserable I make you, I've shared this misery all week long, and so I'm just inviting you in on my misery. And this is what this is sharing. We're supposed to have all things in common. Let's have misery in common. I know this is just a, a liberating, life-changing, but challenging message. So I want you to really be listening up. And before I even get into the, the text, uh, I want to pray. Father, help us most of all to lower our defenses that filter you out to keep us living in prisons of our own making. Empower us to turn from our deceptive stories we tell ourselves to, to reality, to face reality and to submit our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We're entitling this Facing Reality because as we'll see here in a little bit, uh, the whole kingdom is about facing reality. I'll read the text. We're reading from Luke chapter 11, verses 29 through 32, four verses. Uh, I'll make some comments as I'm reading the text and then we'll get into the, the uh, meat of the message. Starting with verse 29. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. Great sales pitch. It asks for a sign, but none will be giving it, given it except the sign of Jonah. You'll remember that back in verse 16, if you've been here for a couple of weeks, we, 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 we noted there how Jesus cast a demon out of this guy who was mute. And that was impressive, but some of the crowd wanted more. Okay, that was impressive, but show us a little bit more. They wanted a sign. Prove to us that you're the Messiah. And Jesus says in verse 20, If I, by the finger of God, am casting out demons, then you know the kingdom of God is in your midst. And what he's saying there is this. If my ability to set people free of their sicknesses and diseases and my ability to set people free from demons, if that's not enough to convince you that the reign of God, the kingdom of God, has come to this earth, then there's something wrong with you. There's something blocking you from the kingdom. You shouldn't need another sign. Then in verse 30, says, Jesus says, For as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. There's some discussion about what exactly the sign of Jonah is. Some argue that the sign of Jonah is Jesus' burial and resurrection. As Jonah was in the uh, belly of that great fish uh, for three days, so also Jesus was in the earth for three days. But then as Jonah came out, so Jesus comes out of the grave. And that was the sign of Jonah. Others, however, argue that the sign of Jonah was simply the fact that, that Jonah uh, confronted the Ninevites and called on them to repent. And Jesus is here calling on people to repent. And so in that case, Jesus is saying, you want a sign? Okay, here's a sign. Repent. That's all the sign you're going to get. It may actually be both. That Jesus is saying, here's the sign of Jonah. I'm calling on you like Jonah did the Ninevites. I'm calling on you to repent. But you'll see very shortly that I have the authority to do that because I'm going to rise from the dead. Just like Jonah came out of the mouth of the giant fish. Then in verse 31, listen to this. Jesus says, the queen of the south will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. But now one greater than Solomon is here. The queen of the south is the queen of Sheba. And she's spoken about in 1 Kings chapter 10. This pagan queen, she was pagan, 
She traveled a great distance because she heard that Solomon had this extraordinary wisdom and that the hand of God was on him. And so she wanted to come and check this out. And in fact, when she came, she was overwhelmed by the wisdom of Solomon and and gave a contribution to him and some other things. And what Jesus is saying here is this. If this pagan queen could respond positively to the little bit of light that she had, how much more should this people, my audience, who have so much light, they're part of the whole Jewish tradition, how much more should they respond to me, the light of the world? And the fact that that queen could respond positively to such a little bit of light uh, means that she will indict all of you if you don't respond positively to the light that you have in front of you right now. And then in verse 32, Jesus says, The people of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. So what Jesus is saying here is this. If these pagan Ninevites, the Ninevites were actually a part of the land of Canaan. They were regarded as the enemies of God. But these Ninevites, just based on the little bit of light that they got from the preaching of Jonah, they were willing to repent. And so if these Ninevites repented, responded positively to the little bit of light that they had, how much more should Jesus' audience respond positively to the light that they have because now one who is much greater than Jonah is in their midst? And if they don't respond positively, then the positive response of the Ninevites will condemn these folks on the judgment day. That's what Jesus is saying. Among other things, the passage does tell us this, that God is at all times, at all places, among all people, working to bring as much light as possible and working to get people to respond positively to that light. Paul says in Acts 17 that uh, God has set the boundaries of nations and is at work in all the nations to try to get people to grow up for him, to search for him insofar as their culture will allow him and possibly find him insofar as their culture will uh, allow them. God judges people based on the light that they have. All that is to say this. Sometimes Christians get the idea that the message of the Bible It tells us the main thing that God's doing in world history, working with the Jewish people, raising up a Messiah, and then birthing the church. That's the the central, most important thing that God's doing in world history. But sometimes Christians seem to think that that's the only thing that God's doing in world history. When, in fact, there's little hints, such as the passage that we're reading here this morning, that tell us that God is working everywhere at all times. Sometimes Christians wonder about, can people outside of Christianity be saved? And this passage tells us that here Jesus is praising these folks for responding positively to the little bit of light that they had. Uh, God judges people based on the light that they're given. But actually, Jesus, we've seen this motif throughout the book of Luke especially. Uh, There's this uh, motif, this theme in Jesus' teachings where those who think they're on the inside end up being on the outside. And those who thought they were on the outside end up being on the inside. And if we take that message seriously and this passage seriously, rather than sitting around wondering whether they can, those outsiders can possibly be saved, we'll leave that to God. God's a just judge. He'll do the right thing. We ought to be asking this question. Are we responding positively to the light that we have been given? Because we've been given a whole lot of light. Are we surrendered to the kingdom? It puts sort of the, the onus back on us. Okay, let's, let, let's uh, pick this passage apart a little more deeply. The first thing that Luke says is that the crowds were increasing. Word was getting out about Jesus, about his miracles, and he, how he delivered this guy and whatnot. So the crowd was starting to swell. And just as the crowd is swelling, Jesus takes this wonderful opportunity to announce, this is a wicked generation. Now what I love about the teachings of Jesus and the whole style of Jesus is that he is so un-American in the way that he approaches things. I mean, he, if he had taken one course on American church planting, he never would have preached like that. Come on, you got a big crowd. This is the point. 
uh, you know, and, 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 and so if you've got a big crowd here, let's have a little bit of seeker sensitivity and, and meet, meet, meet their needs and make them feel comfortable and don't make them feel awkward and, and, and you know, just kind of downplay the, the tough news a little bit here. You know, make them feel good and, and, and bless their life and show them how you can improve their life a little bit more and, and then tell them to go home and invite their friends and so tomorrow you can have even a bigger crowd because building a big crowd, a big church, a big whatever is the point of the whole thing. And if we get anything out of this passage, it's got to be that getting big is not the point of anything. Getting a large crowd is not necessarily evidence of anything kingdom happening at all. Getting a large crowd might be evidence that you got a great personality, maybe you got a great voice, maybe you got a great program, maybe you got a lot of energy in the room, who knows what's going on there, but it's not necessarily evidence that anything kingdom is happening at all. Now, if he was doing it the American way, you'd say, let's build on this momentum. The crowd's coming, man. Let's just, see, let's just make this happen. But Jesus confronts them head on. He doesn't do it the American way. He blasts them. He's really saying this. Why are you here? Why are you here? What did you come out to see? In, in Luke 7, he puts it this way. Why are you here? What did you come out to see? Uh, do you come to see a reed shaken in the wind? Ooh, look at this little trick. Do you come out to see a person dressed up in fine clothing? Well, you can get that if you go to Caesar's palace. Go there if that's what you're looking for. You come looking for a religious carnival? You want a sign? You want a big wow from heaven? What'd you come out here to see? And uh, he's more interested in the motives of people coming out than he is in the crowd themselves. And so he says, you wicked generation, you want a sign? You come out for a sign? I'll give you a sign. It's a sign of Jonah. Repent. Repent. Getting a large congregation is no evidence of the kingdom. Now, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. that doesn't, it doesn't mean that you're not doing the kingdom, but you can't take that as a sign of success. It may be evidence of a religious carnival or something else. Crowds come and go. The evidence of the kingdom is simply this. People are doing what Jesus told the woman that we saw last week do. The lady who cried out, blessed is your mother. And Jesus says, well, here's what's blessed. Hear the word of God and obey it. When people's lives are being changed... When they're turning from their self-centered way of doing life to a Jesus-centered way of, of doing life. When they're beginning to walk in the reality of the kingdom and beginning to experience the, the freedom of the Spirit and beginning to look like Jesus and love like Jesus and be free to serve others like Jesus. That's the kingdom. It doesn't matter how many people there are or how few people there are. If that's happening, you got kingdom. If it's not happening, you don't have kingdom. Sometimes shrinking something might be more kingdom than building it. Uh, sometimes you might be doing the kingdom if you bring a church down to five people. If those five people are doing the kingdom, that's the kingdom. On the other hand, building from five to 50,000 doesn't mean that anything kingdom's happening at all. You can't quantify the kingdom. The kingdom is defined qualitatively, and that quality is, do you look like Jesus? Are you loving like Jesus? Are you serving like Jesus? And so Jesus confronts this crowd. Now, now why? Why does he have to be so nasty? I mean, yeah. Mean. Come on, Jesus, you're being a meanie here. The crowd's coming out. They want to see something, and you go, What a wicked generation. Why is he warning them about being in danger of judgment? And why, oh, why, to this Jewish audience, you're going to hold up a pagan queen and the Canaanite Ninevites, for crying out loud, saying, These folks are going to judge you on the judgment day because they responded positively to their little bit of light but you're not responding positively to the light that you have I mean that is really going to irritate tick off aggravate madden the audience that you're you're talking to why was he doing that well kind of uh, you know, the thing is, this, the, pagan, the pagan queen and this pagan nation of the Ninevites, they responded positively to the little bit of light they had, and so Jesus praises them. But this crowd that Jesus was attracting, yeah, they came out to see him, but that doesn't impress Jesus at all. What he senses is that they're looking for a sign. Uh, they, they're showing up because they want Jesus to do something. Because these, these folks, this Jewish audience that he has, Many of them, at least, perhaps most of them, have a preconception of what the Messiah is supposed to do, what the Messiah is supposed to be like. They're coming with their religious baggage, and they want to fit Jesus into their preconceived notions of what the Messiah is supposed to do and about what God is like. This is, I submit to you, a disease that afflicts many religious people. Uh, they are so sure that they are right, that they've got God in a box, they've got everything defined, that they then filter out all the light of the world insofar as the light of the world doesn't agree with what they already believe. Especially for people who get a little bit of life and worth from the rightness of their beliefs, they're so locked into their system, God himself can't teach them a new thing if there's a new thing to be taught. 
And that's kind of the situation of the crowd that Jesus is, is dealing with. Pagans are a lot easier than religious people. Pagans, they, they, they don't have the preconception, the baggage. You know, they got their other issues that need to be taken care of, but they don't have God in a little box and all their nice, every T crossed and every I dotted and, and they, you know, got everything defined. Uh, religious folks can be a tough, tough nut to crack. One of the best ways to get yourself disliked by some religious crowds, ostracized, maybe even hated, is to propose a new thought. <laughs> uh, I'm just saying. Uh, have you ever thought about looking at it? Here's a different way. It's just a possible way of looking at things. You know, what, what, here's a, have you ever thought about looking at it this way? And among some, if they're getting life from the rightness of their beliefs, you, you've just committed a mortal sin. <laughs> to go back to my old Catholic categories. I mean, this is serious stuff. You know, what? A new thought? Don't you know that all truth was given to us in Sunday school and we've believed the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help us God all of our life. And so if it's new, it can't be true. And if it's old, it's already been told. And we'll define what is new and what is old. And so, you know, you're a heretic for having a new thought. And so here Jesus is trying to give them a new way of looking at something, the light of the world, but they can't see it. They're blocked by that. They're blinded by that. They had preconceived notions of the Messiah. And they wanted to try to fit Jesus into their theology rather than letting Jesus reform their theology. They're saying, Jesus, tell you what, we'll entertain the possibility that you're Messiah, but you've got to do it on our terms. That thing, casting the demons out of people, that was kind of cool. Yeah, 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 but do, uh, you know, we want another trick. Uh, may, may, may do a sign from heaven. Give us another sign. Come on. You, your job is to prove to us that you're the Messiah. Show us a sign. And the, the sign they really wanted, and this comes clear throughout the whole Gospels, is that they wanted a Messiah who would take political and, and military power and overthrow the Roman government and reinstate Israel as a sovereign nation. That's what they're really up to. But Jesus isn't going to fit their bill. Their preconceptions and their beliefs blocked them from seeing the light of the world. So Jesus calls on them to repent. He confronts them in really strong terms. He has to. Out of love, he's confronting them in very strong terms. In fact, we're going to see a lot of this in this whole chapter that we're dealing with uh, in this series. Now, I want to talk about the word repent. The word repent. Two, two main things I want to, to bring out about this concept. First, repentance involves facing reality. It involves facing reality. Most of us, like most first century Jews, have a tendency, in fact, I think all of us do, have a tendency to want to define reality on our own terms. We all live with a story in our head, a narrative. Uh, it's the way we talk to ourselves. It's our map of the world. It's the conversation in our head. It's how we interpret the world. And based on the story that we have in our head, it, it, it tells us uh, you know, what we believe about God, what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about other people, what we believe about what's going on in this world. It determines our actions and our attitudes, where we go to church and, and, and everything else about our life. It's, it's the map that we have of the world in our head. It's the story in our head. It's how we define reality. The thing is, the truth is, that we don't get to define reality. The truth is, only God, the creator of all reality, gets to define reality. Our job as human beings is to get the story that we tell ourselves in our head to line up with the reality as God defines it. C.S. Lewis, in, in one of his writings, I couldn't locate this quote, I think it was in God in the Dock in one of those essays, but he said something like this, this is a close paraphrase, he says, the whole business of life is to learn what is real and to learn how to like it. And that really is the job of the kingdom, to, get, to, to find out, you know, wh what does the king say about the world and to agree with it and learn how to like it. Because we don't like, uh, we don't get to define reality, God does. Our job is to humbly submit our story in our head to God, not try to get God to fit into our story. Sooner or later, to the extent that we're living an illusory story in our head, sooner or later, our story will confront reality. Reality always wins. And sometimes that can be very, very painful. Sometimes we see folks crashing uh, their stories up against the harsh reality of real reality. Here's a, here's a case in point. Elliot Spitzer, we've read about him recently. You read that story of this guy whose whole political career was really spent cracking down on prostitution and other sins, and it turns out he himself was engaging in it for some time, spending a lot of money getting high-end prostitutes. And you read the story of this guy, and, you, and you, you ask the question, what were you thinking? 
I mean, I, you know, leveraging so much, how did you think you would not get caught? What story were you telling yourself? What was going on? What conversation were you having in your head? I, 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 you know, it's hard for us to enter into that, but there's so, he has some way, some story he's telling himself, some narrative he's living in, which made sense of what he was doing, made him think he could do this without getting caught, made him think that he somehow was, he had the right to do this, but reality always wins, and the crash there can be nightmarish. This guy and his poor wife and his poor teenage daughters are living in a nightmare right now because his... His story, illusory, deceptive story, crashed up against reality. Here's another guy whose story crashed against reality. Ted Haggard, president of the National Association of Evangelicals, mega church pastor and, and, uh, and whatever. But then he gets caught with this uh, male prostitute and doing drugs and some other things. And you ask the question, what story were you living in? How did you... How do you do that? How do you, you know, on the one hand, be a leader of, of a Christian movement? On the other hand, you got this other thing going on at the same time. And I have trouble entering into that story. But there's some way that he had of connecting those dots, some way of making sense out of this, of somehow justifying his behavior. But as always happens, sooner or later, our stories confront up against reality if the stories themselves don't agree with real reality. Here's another guy that we all know about was living in some kind of a story. Bill Clinton. I did not have sex with that woman. Um, what, would, what was he thinking? What was he talk, how was he talking to himself? What narrative was he living in? What story was he living in? How does a person with all this power leverage everything on whether a young lady is going to talk to people about her relationship with the president? Probably she is going to talk to people. And so what story was he living in when he got involved in this behavior? Our stories sooner or later crash up against reality if the story we're living in is, is a self-deception and is an illusion. Now, here's the thing. Some of us, at least, maybe a lot of us, live in some of these kind of stories, uh, fantasies, sexual fantasies and whatnot. It's just that when you're kind of wealthy and you get some power, sometimes these kind of folks get, uh, get an, an additional part to their story where they think they're privileged and they actually act on those fantasies. Uh, we're not here to throw stones at these folks because Jesus says if you lust after a person in your own heart, it's the same as actually having you know, a sexual relationship with them. The social consequences are far worse, but it, it's, in terms of sin, it's the same. So we're not here to throw stones. But these... These cases do illustrate how we are able to live in a self-deceptive world that has nothing to do with reality. We tell ourselves stuff, uh, that, 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 things that are not true, falsehoods, that justify our behavior, justify our attitudes, but sooner or later, these stories confront reality and that confrontation can be very, very painful. It's not only about moral issues. It can be about a lot of things. I remember the exact moment when my story of being an uh, Olympic athlete came crashing against reality. Um, when I was 15 and 16 years old or so, I was a really good runner. I kind of matured faster than other kids. And so I went two years and only lost one race in two years. And I, I thought it was really hot stuff. And so I had a story going on of being a, a, an Olympic runner. I was going to be a, you know, the, the, I would win the gold in the mile. I, I thought that's what I was going to do. I know I didn't have the build for it. You know, the, the real good runners are always these skinny guys. And I was kind of, you know, built more like a wrestler. But, you know, I had great stamina so I could overcome that obstacle. And it's true, I was also doing drugs at the time. But, but that just proved how good I was. I mean, I, 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 even with the drugs and stuff, I, I could uh, win these races. And sometimes I'd even do the races while I was high, which is like, what was the story in my head doing that? I mean, that was weird. But uh, I would win, which is just convinced myself of how good I am. And, and so I can be an Olympic athlete. I competed in the state junior Olympics and finished second. And that made me think I was really hot stuff. Ran a 4.45 at the age of 16. That's pretty good, don't you think, uh, for the 16 and under group. So I qualified for nationals. And so I went down to the National Junior Olympics uh, down in Omaha, Nebraska. My dad drove me down there. Got down there and uh, got to the starting line. And immediately I was puzzled because there's only like 20 people there. And they all looked way older than 16, too. It was like, eh. but it was a 16-year-old race. It's just these guys look more ready for this than me. But uh, I was wondering, where's everybody else? Because the top two of every state qualified for the, for the nationals, so there should be 100 people here. Where, how come there's only 20? I asked the guy at the starting line as we were getting warmed up. I go, where's everybody? 
And he says, oh, well, you know, when they got that printout about the qualifying times, most of them didn't bother to come down. You know, this is just the cream of the crop here. And I said, what printout of times are you talking about? I never got no mailing. Never got no mailing. There's some good English for you. What I found out later on is that they mailed out this printout of all the qualifying times uh, across the nation in all 50 states. And what I didn't know until later on was that my qualifying time for nationals was the third slowest in the country. (laughs) So we have the top 20 qualifying guys and me. (laughs) But I didn't know that until the gun went off. It took me about eight seconds to know that. Because these guys went out sprinting. I thought, what is this, a 100-yard dash? You know, pace yourself, guys. This is a mile. we got four long laps to do. At the end of the first mile, I, I, it, was, it was the fastest first, first lap I've ever, at the end of the first lap, it was the fastest first lap I've ever done in a mile. Way faster. Uh, and I was sucking air big time, and I was 10 yards in last place. By that halfway point, the half mile, my half mile time was only three seconds slower than my best half mile time ever. Okay, this was an all out effort trying to just stay in touch. I was a good 30 yards behind everybody else. And then the fatigue starts setting in. My legs get heavy. By the third lap, I'm a good 50, 60 yards behind everybody else. And the nightmare is descending on me. And after that, it's all a blur, but it was like slow motion. It's like Jim Carrey in that one adventure or nature calls or whatever it is where he's, it was like, it was, I was so heavy, so tired, so lethargic. I was like, wait up, you know. It was terrible. It was, my legs were so, I don't know why I didn't quit. Save face, pull a muscle, something, but I stayed in there. Idiot. Gall. They all finished a good half a lap before me. I was, I think, 45 seconds behind everybody. Um, they were the longest 45 seconds of my life. I can't describe to you what it's like to be in a stadium full of people. The cheering has now stopped. It's dead silence. All you can hear are the little click clats of my cleats. And my wheezing. <laughs> it was terrible. It was a nightmare. It was an absolute nightmare. Make it worse, I was wearing this shirt that said super jock on it. (laughs) I wish I would have had a subtitle, not so much. (laughs) But it occurred to me at that moment that probably, probably I'm not going to be an Olympic athlete. It's just I'm not built for it. I'm just not cut out for it. And and that's not going to happen. It's easy to be a big fish when you're in the little pond of Minnesota. Uh, You go to be national and then go world and all of a sudden it's a lot bigger pond and you ain't so hot then. See, our, our, the dream, my, my, my story came crashing up against reality. And it's good to pursue your dreams. It is good to pursue your dreams. But you also have to pay a little bit of attention to reality. And, and ask the question, is this the right dream to be pursuing? And it can happen in our life that something happens where, where we confront reality and you realize that maybe you're not going to be the, the rock star singer you thought you were going to be. Maybe you're not going to be the great writer or the football star or the dancer that you thought you, you were going to be. You wake up to reality. Or something can happen where you wake up to the reality that despite the story you've been telling yourself for five years, your marriage really is not a good marriage. In fact, it's on the rocks. And you've been trying to kid yourself and ignore all the evidence and everything else, but now reality happens. Reality happens. Or maybe reality happens where something goes on where all of a sudden you realize that despite the story you've been telling yourself, your kids are not the perfect Christian kids you have been pretending they were. Uh, Maybe your kid really is on drugs and you've been ignoring all this evidence. Not my kid, no way. And maybe the teachers and the principal and the neighbors are right when they're saying your kids are really the problem kids on the block and you've been standing up for them. Reality happens. You wake up to, to reality. Or maybe something happens where all of a sudden you realize you never thought it could happen to you, but you are addicted. And you've been telling yourself you could quit any time. You've been telling yourself it's just for a little while. You've been telling yourself one more for the last three months. And now you realize that you can't stop. And now you're thinking about doing things you never thought you'd be doing just to support this habit that you got. You hit reality. And you realize you need help. You can't quit this thing on your own. Reality happens when the delusions and the lies and the falses that we tell ourselves confront reality. Something happens where all of a sudden you realize you're not as non-judgmental as you thought you were. You're not as loving as you thought you were. You're not the radical kingdom disciple that you thought you were. And you face reality. The thing is, we don't get to choose reality. God does. Our job is to conform to reality Not to think that we can create it with the stories we tell in our heads. And that can be very, very tough. It can be very, very tough. 
You know, uh, just yesterday, I, I have a, a website, gregboy.org, and I, I run all my uh, outside speaking and my books through that, that nonprofit ministry, and I blog on this website. And I've been, I really just kind of think out loud on theological issues. And I've been wrestling with this topic, which is, I think, the most difficult theological topic you can wrestle with, and that is, how do you reconcile the teachings of Jesus with uh, the violence of the Old Testament? Just been wrestling with this one. And so I'm just processing different authors and ways of looking at it and whatever. And there's one author that I really like a lot. His name's Vernon Eller that I've been talking about on this blog. And Vernon Eller, he, he's a, he's a Bible-believing theologian. I, I like the guy. But he tries to argue that when the Old Testament warriors heard Yahweh telling them to slaughter people, they simply heard it wrong. And he makes a case about this that was part of the cultural packaging of the time. Now, as I'm blogging on this, there's a part of me that would so love to believe that. It would make my life easier. It would make my theology much more consistent. I, I would so want this to be true. And so I looked seriously at his arguments, wanting to be convinced, but as I said yesterday on my blog, I can't do that. I, among other things, I am submitted to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and he embraced the whole Old Testament as inspired by God, so I have to embrace the whole Old Testament as inspired by God. I wish I didn't. I wish I could just cut those, 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 those genocide passages out of the Bible. I wish I could just be done with them. They deeply disturb me, and I'm beginning to think that they're supposed to deeply disturb us, and that's maybe one of the points of them being there, but, but I just wish I could ignore that. But see, I don't get to choose reality, and I don't get to choose the Bible. My job is to try to get my head to submit to it. And sometimes we don't like this stuff. It's hard. But the job of being a human being is to submit, humbly confess that we're not God and to submit ourselves to reality when it confronts us. Repentance is about waking up to reality. What is real? And it may disagree with what's in our head. And secondly, repentance is about once you wake up to reality, you turn towards it. Turn away from your lies and your self-delusions and you turn towards reality. I believe that God, almost every day of our life, insofar as it's necessary, is always trying to get us to repent. To get us to see that it's in our best interest to turn to him. And look at the world the way he looks at the world and live the way he calls us to live. To admit that we aren't God and we don't get to define reality. To confess that he alone is God and he gets to define reality. And to realize that our job is to humbly turn from our own stories and submit to God's story, which defines all of reality. He knows what is best. It's a little bit like this. In our house, we've got two dogs. There's Max, and that's more Shelley's dog. And she, first of all, is my wife adorable? And then my dog, in a very different way, is quite adorable. Uh, <laughs> That's Max. Max is a smart dog. Really smart dog. Max is a really cute dog. And Max is an obedient dog. Unless he gets around other dogs and then he turns into a lion. But other than that, he's a really good and obedient dog. Okay, that's Max. Smart and obedient. Here's Riley. He's our other dog. This is more my dog. Riley is very cute. I love this dog. Take care of this dog. Treat this dog very well. But Riley is one of the dumbest dogs on the planet. (laughs) And he's also one of the most stubborn dogs on the planet. You can't teach this dog hardly anything. Oh, he'll learn, he'll learn to be obedient as long as there's absolutely nothing else going on in the environment. But, it, you know, he's, he's a beagle rat terrier. And as soon as he smells anything, boom, all obedience is gone. He's after that smell. Or as soon as he hears another dog bark, then comes the... And you try to teach him not to bark. Barking's bad in the house. And he doesn't get it. His amygdala, that animal part of his brain, it's his whole brain. He doesn't have any thinking part. So here's the thing. Max, the smart and obedient, compliant dog, gets to go out running with Shelly. She goes running two miles a couple times a week, and Max goes out running with with her, and they have so much fun, and Max comes back, and he's panting hard, and he's energy well spent, and he has a smile on his face. And Riley looks at Max, and he's so jealous and mad because I don't take Riley out running. And the reason is because I can't take Riley out running. I tried many, many times to take Riley out running. This dog will not learn. We'll go 400 feet, and then he smells something. It's got to go after that smell. And then there's a bark, dog barking four miles away. He's got to try to find that bark. And the way I, the way I jog with him is I, I have a little belt, and I, I, I attach the leash to my belt so I can have both arms when I'm running. And so running with Riley is like, uh, we go 400 yards, and all of a sudden he's pulling me this way, and he's pulling me this way, and pulling me back this way, and, and it, it just doesn't work. 
I try, uh, two years straight during the summers, I've tried to teach this dog how to run alongside of me, like Max does, and he will not get it. And so finally, I gave up. I just have quit. The last time we went out was last year. I uh, went out about 400 yards again, and he smelled something, and, and he insisted on stopping. I was like, come on, Riley, come on. You can know, join with the program here. But he wouldn't do it. He planted his feet down, and he just locked himself in. And I got so mad, I just dragged him. I just was like, and here's that dog just skidding along on his butt, you know, trying to. I'm surprised someone didn't call, you know, PETA and get me arrested, an animal rights activist or something. You know, it just, okay, this won't work. This is not, not he's unteachable. Now, I wonder if, if, if it's not a little bit like that with God, where God is saying, okay, look at you guys. I created reality. I know how this thing works. I know what's best. If you'll, if you'll just go along with my program, we can go out running together. It will be so great. We can soar. You can enter the kingdom. You'll be experiencing a freedom and a love and, and a power and a, the life that I always intended you to have. If you'll just go along with the program, turn to my ways which define reality. Don't be stuck in your own stories. But if you stay stuck in your stories and refuse to turn to my ways, well, then you're just going to get your butt skidded up for a long, long time. It's just not going to work. Your ways are going to confront reality. He's calling on us to turn. And the whole of the kingdom is about turning to making him king of our life. And making our life the dome in which God is king. That's the kingdom of God. Which means we submit to his way of looking at things. We submit to his way of living in life. Even when, even when our own stories say that that doesn't make any sense. And we don't want to go that way. That's what repentance is all about. Facing reality and turning from our own false stories to reality and submitting to reality as God defines it. That's repentance. Now let me say very quickly as I close, three other things about repentance because there's some misconceptions about this. First, repentance is not necessarily emotional. There are some folks out there that really you know, suggest that unless you were crying and beating your chest and whatever, uh, then it wasn't real repentance. I've even heard Christian people on radio stations uh, ask callers, well, you know, were there tears shed when you repented of your sin and turned to Christ? And the person says, not really. They question their salvation. And that, I, that is, that, you guys, that's, that, that's crazy. The word repentance in Greek is metanoia, and it just means to turn around or to go in reverse, to turn around. There's no emotional component to it necessarily. Now, there, there may be emotion, but there doesn't have to be. In fact, the term was used by military commanders when a troop was marching and the, the commander said, about face, he said, metanoia, repent. And the troops turned around. And it's not like the troops started crying because they were going the wrong way. Okay? It's, <laughs> no, it's, you can decide to turn to God and there's no emotion at all. You just see that this is the right way to go. A lot of times we, we wake up to how grievous our sin is as we're walking along God's way. It's not the precondition for our walking God's way. Uh, we, we learn that as, as, as we go along. So having emotion isn't a, a condition of repentance. On the other hand, having emotion doesn't mean that you've repented. You can be sorry about something, but that itself is not repentance. In fact, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, he bawled them out in a, in a previous letter. I'm not happy about that, but I'm happy that your sorrow led you to repentance. Which tells us that sorrow is not the same as repentance. Sorrow should lead us to repentance, but you can be sorry about something and not repent at all. You can feel really bad about the way you're living, about the people you're hurting, and all sorts of other stuff, but that doesn't make you more righteous. It's <laughs> because you feel bad about it. What, what, what is righteous is when on the basis of that sorrow, you make a decision to turn and you start going in a different direction. Metanoia. Which leads to a second point, and that is that repentance is an action. It's not an emotion, it's an action, a choice. And it's not just an action about you now choosing to go in a different direction, though it is that as well, but it means to reverse, which includes trying to reverse the wrongs that you've done. If you've stolen, you now try to make restitution for that. Reverse some of the negative effects of what you've done in the past. If you've wronged people, hurt people, abused people, whatever, Maybe an apology is in order. When Jesus came to Zacchaeus' town, uh, he, he said this in Luke 19. Uh, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anyone out of anything, I'll pay it back four times, four times the amount. Repentance is about not just deciding to go in a different direction. You're no longer going to benefit from the wrongs that you've done. 
and you're going to try to make restitution. You reverse the effects of what you've done in the past. Apologies when necessary, uh, you know, restoring things that maybe you've stolen, cheated, cheated people out of. Some people find that this decision to go back and make restitution breaks strongholds in their life. There's something very liberating about it. Because if we continue on without doing that, sometimes there can be like a, a spiritual legacy or a lingering effect of the wrongs that we've done in the past that can, that can to some degree compromise our kingdom walk. And so it's good to go back and make restitution. Now you need to use wisdom in this. And listen to me on this. Ask God for wisdom and ask your small group or your friends for wisdom uh, if you're considering about going back and making restitution on certain issues. Uh, there's a, a person I knew, for example, who uh, all of a sudden felt really bad, repented of, of some of their sexual behavior and wanted to make restitution. And among other things, he went and talked to a husband and apologized to the husband for having sex with his wife 11 years earlier when they were dating. And, and the husband didn't know that his wife had sex with this guy or any guy before they got married. And this guy really wasn't, shouldn't have been the one to inform his, the husband of that. Um, so you need to use wisdom on this. And of course, that causes a lot of marriage problems. Seek God's wisdom. But all other things being equal, insofar as it's possible, seek to make restitutions for wrongs that have been done. And that leads to me to the third point, uh, third concluding comment about repentance. And that is this. It's not necessarily only an individual thing. We in the West think about repentance as an individual thing that we do because we think about everything in individual terms. But actually in the Bible, more often than not, repentance was a corporate thing. A group of people did it. So Jonah comes to the Ninevites and all the Ninevites repent. Many times God called on all the Israelites to repent, to turn from their old ways and turn to him. Jesus, in this passage that we're looking at here this morning, calls on this entire generation to repent. There's a room for corporate repentance. And in fact, like everything else about human life and certainly everything else about the kingdom, there's more power in a corporate repentance than there is an in individual repentance. Now, we need to individually repent, for sure, for sure. But there's a power when a group of people together confess and turn and the Spirit of God lands on that and does kingdom stuff in people's lives that couldn't be done any other way. In fact, whole churches can repent. Whole congregations can repent. In fact, that's what I want to do now. I want to lead us in a prayer, kind of a liturgical prayer of repentance, of turning. And I invite those who are listening by podcast to join in this, uh, but you see yourself as in solidarity with the rest of us as we're praying this prayer. Um, if your heart is to turn from your, the illusions of your own story, your own way of doing life, and turn to God's way, I want you to pray this prayer. If you're not there yet, then don't pray it. But if that's your heart. This isn't a pledge that now you're going to live life perfect, because you can't pledge that. You can't promise that. But it is a, a declaration of an intention. I'm doing an about face. We're gonna, I want us to pray this whole prayer as a group. Uh, none of us here will be guilty of everything that's on this prayer. But all of us here will be guilty of some of the stuff that's on this prayer, and the Holy Spirit will apply it to our life as necessary. But I, I want us to confess even the areas where we're perhaps not individually guilty, because this isn't an individual thing, this is a corporate thing. We as a church, as a whole, a solidarity, we are confessing that we want to turn from our old ways and turn to our new, new, uh, God's ways. And so here's the prayer. I'd like us all to stand. I'll read the parts that are in light. You read the shaded parts and it's always the same. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you make this real to us. Make it your heart intent. Confess it and pray this out of your heart's sincerity, your integrity, your intention. It's a call to repentance. Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Empower us to wake up to God's truth and turn from our falsehood. Heavenly Father, for the many ways we've conformed to the pattern of this world instead of to the image of Jesus Christ. Now you pray. For living like we were on vacation rather than as soldiers in a battle. For seeking first the American dream rather than the kingdom of God. for consuming more than we need when brothers and sisters around the world go without. For the ways we have reduced you to a tribal God who is on our side 
instead of on the side of all humans. Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, empower us to wake up to God's truth and turn from our falsehood. Heavenly Father, for having more confidence in the ways of Caesar than the ways of the cross. For hating our enemies rather than loving and serving them. For failing to submit every aspect of our daily lives to you. For being too busy to notice the hurting the lonely and the lost in our midst. For our unwillingness to pursue relationships with people whose appearance and culture is different than our own. For esteeming some people as more important than others. For not being outraged by the violence and injustice in the world. Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, empower us to wake up to God's truth and turn from our falsehood. And Heavenly Father, for believing the lies people have told us about ourselves rather than trusting your word about us, spoken on Calvary. For allowing the promiscuity of our culture to influence our sexual attitudes and behavior. for judging others as worse sinners than ourselves. For allowing ourselves to fall into the bondage of strongholds and addictions. For gossiping and slandering people rather than blessing them. For praying too little and watching television too much. For all the lies we've told and all the things we've stolen. For failing to live out the radical call of the Jesus-looking kingdom. Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, forgive us for the ways that we've lived in our own stories, gone our own ways, done right what's in our own eyes, conformed to the culture rather than to your will. Empower us to turn, Lord, to turn to see, God, that you are the creator of the world. We are not. And you know how things work best. We do not. And so, Lord, we turn. We turn. We repent. And we ask you to empower us to walk in your kingdom with you as king and us as the dome. And now, Lord, as we go into this other time, the second time of worship, we pray, Lord God, you turn our attention to you. Help us to submit our hearts wholly to you. Use it, Lord God, as a way of sealing in our hearts this confession that we just prayed to turn and to walk in this turning. And now, Lord, as we take up this offering as our first act of worship, we do it with the acknowledgement that every good gift comes from you. We ask you to steward it. Help us steward it uh, for your glory in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. You may be seated. We're going to continue to worship the Lord now.
God is, is a holy, he's beauty itself, holiness itself, he's life itself, love itself, he's, he's beauty. And he wants to dance with us. But it only works, it only works if we let him lead. <laughs> that's the deal, that's the deal. And so he's always saying, turn, turn. Turn from your way, insofar as your way is not my way. Turn from your way. Repent, submit, and then let's dance. Uh, I'm gonna close in prayer, and as I do that, I wanna say that our prayer team will be up here, and uh, we have several prayer teams. If you wanna come forward and receive prayer for any matter whatsoever, feel free to come forward and pray with these folks. Or if you just want to be at the altar, maybe God's working on your life for something, uh, don't leave until he's, the presence of God is here. I almost feel guilty dismissing us, but if you want to hover in this place and, and just stay in the presence and pray, feel free to do that. If you're here this morning and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, really surrendered your life to him, this is the time to do that. And just come forward and talk to these folks up here and they'll just lead you in a prayer that gets that kingdom walk started. Lord, as we leave here, we do confess, God, that you are the creator, you are beauty, you are love, you are life, and nothing else is. And uh, God, we pray that the turning that we professed this morning, would God be a reality an hour from now, a day from now, a week from now, a year from now? God, remind us to dance with you and follow your lead, to submit ourselves to you, Lord God, to repent, to turn, to be a people who don't stubbornly refuse and go our own way, but rather acknowledge that you are the wise one. You know how it works best. You know how life is best lived. You know how to live a beautiful life. And God, help us to see the wisdom of that and to submit, even in areas we don't understand, even in areas that hurt, help us to submit. Thank you for being a loving, forgiving, merciful God who doesn't give up on us. And teach us to walk in repentance and transformed lives of the kingdom in Jesus' name. And all God's people said one last time. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. God bless you. Go out and build the kingdom. <laughs>